Trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and may be distressing for some listeners. Pride Across the Ages is a collaborative project to amplify and celebrate the voices of LGBTIQA living in central Victoria. All episodes were recorded on Jar Jar land and respectfully recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So I'm 66 years of age, so I was born in 1956 and I identify as a lesbian and my pronouns are she and her. My childhood was pretty ordinary actually, it was very suburban. I grew up in Hyatt in Melbourne and it wasn't a particularly highly populated area by any stretch of the imagination. So I attended the the local primary school, Hyatt primary school which doesn't exist anymore thanks to Jeff Kennett and yeah it was fairly ordinary it was a fairly free-flowing kind of childhood we just rampaged around the area lots of paddocks around the area so it was a case of once you got a bike you had amazing freedom and the best part I suppose was my auntie and uncle lived four houses down the street Basically, my best friend was my cousin, Jim. I didn't much care for my other cousin, who was older than us. Jim and I were much closer in age, and she was an absolute bully. So Jim and I hung out a lot together, played cricket, and did all those kind of fun things. And it was always good, particularly at Christmas time, when he got all the fantastic toys and sporting goods for for Christmas so yeah we always played footy in the street so it was all pretty yeah pretty free-flowing to say the least. I got some good stuff at Christmas I must admit I got a guitar when I was about seven or eight I think. I got a bike about the same age. My mum was more into giving very practical presents like undies and towels and (laughs) all sorts of things like that which persisted right throughout my adulthood as well. I'm talking about the the late late 50s, early 60s, where boys got all the interesting stuff. And it probably was the beginning of that kind of consumerism with games. And I don't know whether anybody remembers, there used to be a game called Mousetrap. And there was lots of interesting toys like that he always got. And he always got cricket bats and all that sort of stuff, which was very appealing to me. But mainly it was, yeah, playing cricket in summer, kicking the football in winter and sharing those kind of toys together was great. That's why it was fantastic to have Jim as a best mate. And he was, yeah, he filled that gap in lots of ways. There were lots of kids living in the street, but it was pretty much a case of whomever you went to primary school with that you hung out with in lots of ways because it was very isolated so many paddocks around the area you didn't wander more than probably a couple of blocks away from home it was just a bit too scary or something or other and um, yeah so basically it was the kids that you went to primary school with as long as they didn't live more than a couple of blocks away so I had another friend Julie who lived around the corner and she had twin sisters 
So I always visited them. So there were a couple of friends around the area, but it was pretty scattered. I used to spend an awful lot of time with my nan and pop. Unfortunately, my pop died when I was 10 and they lived in Windsor and then eventually they moved. Just before my pop died, they moved to Hyatt, which was fantastic. So a lot of my childhood, I remember, I spent an awful lot of time with my nan and up and down Chapel Street, Windsor and Paran, and because mum and dad both worked. So it was a case of I was dropped off at their place early in the morning and then picked up in the evening. And, and that kind of went on when they even moved to Hyatt. I ended up spending quite a bit of time with my pop. So he was a carpenter and joiner. So I spent an awful lot of time in the woodshed building things, him teaching me, all sorts of carpentry. And I had my own set of tools. I was given my own set of tools and my own bench. And my father was a, an auto electrician and mechanic. So I grew up around that very strong identity of fixing things, repairing things, just following them around and doing things with them. I spent, I, I suppose I spent a fair bit of time with my nan. She probably taught me the intricacies of cooking. She had lived an interesting sort of life. She left Northern Ireland at a very early age and then went to Scotland and worked as a scullery maid. So she had some pretty good cooking skills all around. And I learnt most of what I learnt from her and my mum. So I tried to spread myself over both those areas, I suppose, fixing things and cooking. There was no pressure to, to follow any particular gender role, I don't think. I was always encouraged to just, I think, be good and be helpful. And it was always incredibly interesting what I got to do with my pop and what I did with my father. It was crawling under the house a lot of the time, um, doing electrical stuff and whatnot. And yeah, there was no particular pressure. I think my mother accepted it fairly early on in the piece that I wasn't going to be the girly girl that some of my friends were. And I think that goes as alongside the sexuality thing. I don't think I realised that I was... I knew I was different because I was different from other girls that I went to primary school with and then, of course, consequently very different from the girls I went to high school with and certainly very different from my female cousin, Julie, very different from her. Uh, I didn't play with dolls. Yes, I had other things that that I played with, but I was just definitely not interested in girly girl things. But that was never knocked out of me or I was never dissuaded from doing what I was doing, I don't think. And I probably first had an inkling of my sexuality very early on in my teens. And I started thinking, why are all these girls swooning over these really quite revolting looking I hate to say, young men. They were just awful. And I didn't find anything attractive about what they did or what they said. And then I started to get an inkling that there was something really different. And then by the time I hit second form, which is what, year eight, year eight changed everything dramatically. We had a visiting lecturer or a visiting person came in and 
our English teacher at the time had progressively over the year asked very different kind of people to come in and talk about some interesting issues that were happening at the time, talking about anti-war protests and all sorts of things like that. But the one that really got me was a gay guy who came in who was probably, I don't know because I can't actually, you know, how everybody looks different at a different age, but I presume he was in his late 20s or something or other like that, openly homosexual, and he talked about being homosexual and having to accept the fact that he was different. And yes, he understood that it was against the law and sodomy was something that was frowned upon and and people didn't like homosexuals for whatever reasons. And he made it very clear that he was a very ordinary person trying to live just a normal life. And it's kind of like a recurring theme, I think, with a lot of gay, lesbian, trans people is just, they just want to get on with it and live an ordinary life. And he came across as just a very sensible and grounded kind of character. He didn't wear outlandish clothes. I suppose it was during that period where hippies were running riot and he could have come in looking very different from what he did, but he just looked like any other chap that you would meet on the street. A jacket, shortish hair, and like I said, had a very grounded attitude to everything. And it was a very interesting awakening for me. And it wasn't long after that, I think, that I became aware of Jermaine Greer and a couple of other feminists that were flapping around in the background that then became quite famous. So Jermaine Greer, I suppose it was her public profile that caught my attention. She was in a lot of magazines at the time. And I know at some stage or other, with my pocket money, because I used to work at my dad's service station. So I think I only ever got 20 cents for working a Saturday at the servo, but that's okay. I managed to save up enough and I can't remember what magazine it was in, but I saved up enough money to buy a magazine where Jermaine Greer was profiled over about half a dozen pages. And it was about her view on feminism, male chauvinism, which it was then called. There's a lot of terms now that have just completely died in the arse <laughs> that you don't read about today. But it was really interesting reading and I think I wore that magazine out. I read it and read it. And I think it was that just overwhelming, affirming nature of it. It was like, okay, she talked about lesbianism, she talked about feminism, she talked about a whole lot of issues and it just hit me that, yeah, this all makes sense to me. This makes complete and utter sense to me. This is what I am. I'm pretty sure this is what I am. And based on my feelings of my friends who were, like I said, swooning over young blokes that I found quite revolting and I wasn't interested. Unless they kicked a football, basically, I wasn't interested. And I loved, because I loved footy, and I can't get over that part of me at all, but it's even better now with AFLW, which is just heaven. But yeah, so I think that was probably my first kind of awakening. And then bit by bit, I started to find other avenues of reading about different kind of women and different 
experiences they had, not so much in feminist theory as much, but in women's literature. And then before I knew it, it just was a whirlwind. Before I knew it, I ended up at art school at 16. And that was an absolute mind blast, a complete mind blast. It was like walking into a room that was so full of light and movement and ideas and your ability to be accepted in that world was completely different to a suburban high school and I think that's that was the greatest mind-blowing experience I had was the first year at art school when I was 16 and it was pretty dicey, I remember at the time, because my dad had the service station, which was opposite Paran College of Advanced Education. And many of the customers were teachers and lecturers and tutors from the college. And he found out that they really weren't that keen on accepting me because they thought I was too young. But I'm glad they did, because it really changed my life dramatically. And, yeah, I think that was when I started to explore a lot more different sort of things about feminism, for example, and that kind of just developed and developed all the way through art school until I eventually left and went on and did postgrad at Victorian College of the Arts. And that was even more mind-expanding stuff because that was the beginning of probably the the first inklings of the feminist art movement in Melbourne and it was flourishing in America but it wasn't so much known about or expressed through art schools in Australia and fortunately we had some fantastic lecturers like Janine Burke and great artists like Elizabeth Gower like there was a whole list of fantastic women artists that were feminists as well. And Jenny Watson, for example, she still, I think, teaches and she still certainly still paints, that's for sure. And she was a great influence at the time. So it was a really fantastic time to be involved in the art scene, particularly because it was hooked up with Kiffy Carter at Melbourne Uni, the gallery at Melbourne Uni in the Student Union building was part of it. So there was a whole big scene happening and at one stage or other Lucy Lippard, who was one of the first proponents of feminist art theory, she came out from America to visit and did a bit of a lecture tour around Australia but mainly spent time in Melbourne because of her contacts with Kiffy Carter at the gallery and yeah, and Janine Burke, who was, like I said, one, one of my lecturers in art history. And Janine's been a great supporter of women's art right from the very beginning. And she certainly instructed us very well in the whys and wherefores of feminist art and feminist art history. So it was, that was the best time ever was at art school. I wanted to be a painter. I was, I don't know whether you could call it hoodwinked, but (laughs) I was headhunted And there was a couple of people from the graphics art department that wanted me and I just kept shaking my head. Like it was really hard to process when you're 16 that they were actually headhunting you and I didn't really understand what was going on until 
quite some time afterwards, like a couple of years afterwards, because I ended up in the sculpture department and I couldn't work out why everybody else had been for an interview and I hadn't. And I started to panic thinking, I don't think I should be here. I should be somewhere else or something's gone terribly wrong. But anyhow, I hung around and it wasn't a problem. I was supposed to be there apparently. So I don't know what kind of discussion ensued (laughs) that I ended up there, but I ended up in the sculpture department. And I'm eternally grateful for that because it put a lot of things in my head together, like working with tools, working with different mediums. I was only used to using wood because of my pop, like woodworking skills, but I also had some metalworking skills because my father did arc welding, oxyacetylene welding and stuff like that. So I was used to being around that kind of stuff. When I started off, I went into a whole lot of different mediums, like we were allowed to explore anything that we wanted to, basically. And all I can say is I used anything and everything, plastics, cardboards, clay, firing ceramics, metal, uh, timber. Uh, It changed as I went through art school, the kind of emphasis and the direction changed dramatically when I understood aesthetics and I understood what I was trying to express and what mediums I felt more comfortable with and I had a lot of help and a lot of mentorship from our then head of department John Davis who was just the most magnificent sculptor and because he lived in Hampton which was close to my mum and dad's place in Hyatt I spent a lot of time with John and, yeah, I did all of his photography for him for catalogues and things like that. So I got fairly heavily into photography at the same time, which was really good because Paul Cox was one of the lecturers in photography and Athel Schmidt was also. So I had some really good lecturers in photography. So we were allowed to cover quite a variety of different mediums and techniques and all sorts of things from life drawing to photography and just we had a couple of days where we just did sculpture and then there was other drawing classes and and yeah whatnot and I also took a couple of weird subjects in the humanities area because of the way the college was set up so I did a philosophy of aesthetics and something else weird like that as well that just perhaps opened up my mind (laughs) but yeah it was great fun. It was a long haul and it was a big decision to go on to do postgrad because most people just did their diploma, which is now a degree, and left and either went teaching or whatever. But yeah, I just, I worked my way through. By that stage, I'd left home and I was working basically eight hours a day. I did cleaning in the morning and then cleaning in the evening and then, you know, whatever holidays we had, we did all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And that was probably the upside. I actually earned more money as a student than I ever did as a worker worker. (laughs) But yeah, I love being at art school and it wasn't a problem having to work. It was just like you just got up at the crack of and then you did what you had to do and then 
worked as hard as you could through the day. And, yeah, I fell asleep at a couple of lectures and got the odd jab in the ribs from Janine Burke when I was snoring or something as soon as the lights went down. But I don't think I missed anything dramatically and, yeah, I just worked, you just worked hard, but you're young and you're enthusiastic and you just want to learn. And so that's what I did. I just kept on keeping on. I was a bit infatuated by a painter that I knew but it never developed into anything significant and I was told in no uncertain terms that she was straight and she wasn't what I was looking for. So that's okay and I think that's the whole, that's the sort of interesting part of it, like being quite sure of my sexuality but what I was seeking was community, like other others that felt the same way that I did. Uh, yeah, that kind of connection. I did have one kind of significant, I thought it was significant, but she didn't think so, relationship in that time. And and it was always about seeking community and others and sharing ideas. And it always ended up to be around art. If it wasn't about talking about art it was setting up an exhibition or something or other trying to gather people around that were interested in feminist art and self-image and ideas like that to create an exhibition I think that's where the kind of music thing comes in too because when you're at art school you spend an awful lot of time in pubs and listening to bands and one of the, the great hangouts I suppose of my youth was Station Hotel in Paran on Greville Street. Every Saturday afternoon, went down there and listened to Kevin Borich. It was absolutely fantastic. Very boysy rock band, but always had a good time down there. And then that kind of, as my kind of idea of community expanded, then I started following whatever women's bands were around at the time. And there weren't many. There was like Jane Clifton in Stiletto and there was just the odd a woman that was playing music that, that you heard about and you tried to support and follow and all that sort of stuff. But I think it was when I just finished post-grad that I hooked up with a couple of people. Like it was a couple of women that I knew that were lesbians at the VCA that were painters and they said, oh, you know, we've got these friends that are playing music. Are you interested? And I only played the guitar, but I said, yeah, I'm interested. And so I hooked up with them. And w- one of them was from in- from England and the other two had been backwards and forwards from London to Australia, but were Aussies, Aussie born. And we all got together and formed a band which was a lot of it was a lot of fun it was a heap of fun and i think that's what i'd always been hankering for that kind of that closeness and that sense of community and just hanging out with some mates and my mate jp she played guitar i played guitar and Rhonda Galbelly who's now quite a, an acclaimed academic and all the rest we used to call Rhonda Conga she played the congas that was back in the day, for sure. And then my friend Bev Geldard, she started playing drums for us. I think JP played drums for a while, but she moved between the guitar and the drums. And um, Caroline played, Caroline Gilfill and played keyboards. Heresies, we were called. There was a lot of umming and ahhing about that. And the reason that I came up with that 
was because at the time it was one of the best feminist art magazines that was on the scene and it just came out from America and it was full of the most incredible art and discussions about feminism and art and sexuality and all sorts of things but mainly art and I just thought yeah we are heretics and I love the name I just love the name I love the magazine and I suggested it and yep we got the t-shirt and we went for it (laughs) we did a lot of venues like La Trobe Uni, Melbourne Uni, mainly the where it was a safe space for women and lesbians to hang out because the pub scene is just not just not nice at all and it certainly wasn't nice in the late 70s and the early 80s it was definitely not nice it was a very male dominated and the only place that you could find kind of anybody that was a bit different was if you went to a gay man's venue which was like pokies down in 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 St Kilda and Fitzroy Street and a couple of other venues like that but it was much nicer to have a couple of women's bands playing at one of those university venues and it was yeah it was safe and it was fun and god you can pack in a damn lot of lesbians in one of those venues (laughs) and there was a couple of other bands going around at the time there was Yeah, we called them Raylene Boyle and the Outskirts, but I think they were just Raylene and the something or other. There was a rivalry there, but it was lots of fun. It was lots of fun. And that was when Flying Tackle came onto the scene. They were a four-piece and they played around a lot of pubs. They did a lot of women's events as well, but they had a regular pub gig in Carlton that I went to religiously every week to watch them because they were just so good. But unfortunately, they never, ever recorded, or as far as I know, recorded anything. But they were just absolutely excellent. And I was sharing a house with JP and a couple of others in Hawthorne and they used to come around and play, not so much play music, but spin a few discs and... So the record player was always going full blast at the Hawthorne House. It was, that's, that was the nature of it. It was just music. And while we were doing that, I was in the front room plodding away making art and involved in a couple of exhibits, doing a couple of exhibitions at the time. And then eventually that sort of household split up and the band split up because Caroline went back to London and there were we were all supposed to go back to London and I changed my mind at the last minute and stayed in Melbourne and I don't regret that but yeah maybe I do a little bit (laughs) yeah but it was good it was all incredibly good fun and people came and went from the band and a little bit later on after the house split up a couple of other people came on board because Barbie's Dead were playing and Nina Bongarenko, who lived at the back of Smith Street, she had this kind of weird, wasn't weird actually, it was I think every shop in Smith Street had the same kind of basement arrangement and she'd set up the basement as a like a sound studio. So we regularly went down there and played music down there because Nina played drums and Celeste played bass I played guitar JP played guitar and yeah we just 
mucked around and then Gundy, who's a a very famous photographer actually and was at that stage too, she taught at RMIT and she played saxophone. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. There was a people coming and going and we tried a couple of times to get another band together but it always fragmented into something or other because people were coming and going a lot from Sydney. It was one of those sort of inner city things that happened with the lesbian community. It was like you seemed to stay in Melbourne for a little while and you were up and down. Melbourne, Sydney, Melbourne, Sydney, that sort of thing. I love everything about Sydney, but I never had an inkling to to live there. It was always what needed to be home in Melbourne. I got here to Castlemaine because a couple of friends said it was the best place to be. And I'd got to that stage of my life where I was rattling around in the house. I was still living in Hyatt. My my mum had died and I didn't feel Hyatt was the place that it used to be. It was gentrification had well and truly kicked in. I didn't much like it very much. I didn't like the kind of people that were moving into the area. It was very chaotic and very unlike what I was used to. So I had no money and so I decided to pack up sell a house and move up here based on a couple of friends that lived up here and I had an inkling that some other people that I knew from my past like I had a studio in Brunswick Street Fitzroy above Pigtail Pottery and I knew that Anne and Mazza had moved up here so I knew that there were lesbians that I in my from my past so it was a bit like a circle closing that had moved up here. Yeah, so I moved up here, what, about five years ago, something like that. I'd always quite liked the idea of moving to the country. Little did I realise how difficult it is to be in the country. And I can tell you now, I would move to Melbourne in a heartbeat. There's a lot of things about Castlemaine that are fantastic, but there's equally as many things that are really unpleasant about Castlemaine. And particularly when you have a disability, It's incredibly difficult. The distance between yourself and medical care is enormous. I'm fortunate that that I'm on NDIS and I have got a support worker or support workers that can can take me here, there and everywhere, but it's been an incredibly difficult journey to get that set up for a start because there are so few support services around this area and yeah I just think that it's incredibly difficult the physical built environment is incredibly difficult for anybody living with any level of disability let alone a temporary injury being with a broken leg and crutches or if they're a parent or carer with a child in a pram it's incredibly difficult there's a lot of things about it that I find really frustrating And the fact that nothing kind of moves very quickly. The Shire puts very little emphasis on maintaining the built environment. And the fact that they don't have a disability action plan, which they're only just getting around to having, and I'm part of that as well, the working group that are starting to discuss 
the development of a disability action plan, I just think it's disgraceful that it's taken this long. And I don't think that I really am suited to country living. I'd be much better off in a bigger city. And that's a sad thing to say that that's where disability leads you to those kind of much more populated places where you can get services in place and you can just travel around comfortably on your own because, you know, much like being a lesbian, all I want is a normal life. I don't want anything particularly spectacular or different. I just like to be able to get on with my life and do things in my own way and my own fashion and you can't do that around Castlemaine. Like I said, there's lots of nice things about Castlemaine. Los Queer and Now is a great program on Maine FM. And, yeah, I like that kind of, like that to know that when I switch on the radio, I can listen to Martin with Still Life with Pansy or I can listen to Queer and Now. And there's a whole lot of other people that, that I think are important in our community and make it more comfortable for the LGBTQI community. I think that's fantastic. And clearly there's a lot more acceptance here. I don't really know because I've thought about it a lot because it seems like there's a focus and because it's a smaller population, you wonder whether you're focusing on something negative or focusing on something positive because you see it so much more clearly than you do in Melbourne because it's just so much bigger and diverse. But then again, like I said, I'd always had right throughout my time at art school, I'd always felt like there was a community there and always had been on the fringes of 3CR and a lot of those kind of 3RRR, I suppose, with other students and, yeah, other lesbians, I suppose, and going out to venues and whatnot. But, um, yeah, it's a, bit dif- it's a bit different up here. I find it a bit different and I find it really weird that a lot of people from my past have turned up again but I don't seem to be able to make the same connection with them. There's, yeah, like I said, there are people from my past, but I don't seem to be able to bring that circle closed. I think I've moved on. They've moved on. I don't know. I know I'm a very different person. Perhaps I'm not that different, actually, because I was always quite accepting of people's differences and... I don't condemn anybody as long as they don't condemn me. It's a simple case of you don't rain on my parade, I won't rain on yours. And I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine about anything, really, except for, yeah, there's an edge to everything, of course. (laughs) My disability is, is complicated by the fact that most people don't understand that I'm severely vision impaired. I've got a condition called retinitis pigmentosa and it's genetic and it's getting progressively worse. It degenerates with age. A lot of people uh, manage quite well and I think I manage quite well in lots of ways but it's pretty disconcerting for most people because I can see people's faces and in the most part recognise them at some distance then it's not treated very seriously, basically. 
but it's been incredibly difficult being in the LGBTQI community, I suppose, as well, is that I found that most people just completely dropped off the radar when it came to my disability. It was like I, I basically ended up homeless in some ways. When I was diagnosed, I organised, because I was in the middle of studying building design and drafting, because art doesn't pay the rent. I always knew that something else was going to pop up in my life and that was a perfect thing. But it was really trying to organise the basics, like where I was going to live, how I was going to live, how I was going to survive. And I think that's probably, you know, a pretty normal case for most people that live with disability when it comes on at a later stage in their life. And I'd been having trouble since my late 20s and no one could diagnose what was going on basically because they just didn't scratch the surface and because you retain a reasonable central vision while you're losing your peripheral vision and your night vision then you know it's yeah it's difficult to diagnose unless you're specifically looking for something like that and like I said as far as living arrangement were concerned I was running short of money because I'd taken redundancy package from ABC TV that I've been working for about eight years and I realised that I had to find somewhere to live very bloody fast and I contacted the then Office of Housing. I was offered a flat in Hoddle Street, Collingwood, which I promptly said no to because it was like a known no-go zone and I also had a dog at the time and I said there's no way known I can live in a flat five stories up in Hoddle Street with a dog. Oh, yes, you can, they said. Yes, you can. I said, no, I won't. For my dog's sake and my sake, I'm not, no, I'm not doing it. So I organised a, a movable, what they called a movable unit, which was basically no more than a bungalow that they stuck in my mum's backyard. And it had electricity and water and all that sort of hooked up to it. And you paid a quarter of your pension in rent and I lived like that for 17 years in in this hot box in the middle of summer which was just unbearable in summer and then the walls dripped with moisture and mould grew in the middle of winter and it was interesting that the few friends that I had would come down and go wow what a shit heap and I never saw them again and these were people that I knew, lesbians that I knew for years and years and that was their only reaction. So my reaction was I don't want them as friends. Whether, whether we'd shared special times together or not, it was like none of them really supported me at all through that period. The only one that stuck by me was my mum. I was in my mid-30s when I moved into my mum's place. So... Yeah, it took a while to organise all of that. It was a long journey from diagnosis to actually sorting things out. I did a couple of mad things out of panic. I took myself off sickness benefits, put myself back on the dole, panicked again. There was a whole lot of things going on because I couldn't work it. I couldn't study 
I was doing building design and drafting and it was only because the kindness of or the sense of our head of department at Northern TAFE who said, no, you don't have to leave. I'm not, I'm not losing you as a student. Here's the keys to the computer room. Go and get yourself tooled up with AutoCAD and whenever you go into a class, if you're asked to draw anything, just go to the computer room. I'll square it off with all your lecturers and your tutors and you'll be fine. And thanks to him, I ended up with another 30 years of work because I got a lot better at AutoCAD than any of them did, a lot faster. So by the time I qualified and got out of there, I was employable to some degree, but I went for job after job and was knocked back because you have to declare your disability. So I got knocked back more times than I've had hot dinners, to say the least. But fortunately, through one contact or another, I managed to keep myself semi-employed on a sort of subcontracted basis. So it wasn't never as good as a full-time job or as comfortable as a full-time job. But it's been quite an interesting journey, particularly when I went back to uni to do landscape architecture and because I, I was interested in landscape architecture and I was also employed by a landscape architect for a while who specialised in disability access for playgrounds. And I went to that interview and I was accepted and I started work at the office and it wasn't until about six months after I'd been there the conversation came up about about, oh, we didn't know whether you could do this or not. And I said, what did you think I was doing at university? What do you think I've been doing for all these years with building design and drafting? Why didn't you ask? You're the very people I would expect that are pushing for universal access that would ask about disability. Oh, we just didn't know how to ask. And I think that's the most frustrating thing for people that live with disability is that the general population are too frightened to ask, like they were frightened to ask whether I was a lesbian or not. I don't walk around with a barcode on my forehead so you can scan it and go, oh, look, disability, lesbian, whatever, no hoper, whatever. But you can ask and you can ask nicely. You might be told it's none of your business but you've got, to, you've got to take that on the chin as much as anything else. It's like anything else that you ask people. You can ask politely or you can just go around and fumble around. And I think it's particularly important when you're in a workplace that people do ask what you can and can't do. I'm quite open about what I can and can't do. But if you're an employer, I think it's kind of like fundamental stuff. If you're going to pay me money, you want to know what I can and can't do. So ask. That's the journey. It's the 1st of December and World AIDS Day. We should talk about that and its impact on my life because it was a very big impact during the 80s and unfortunately I lost a very dear friend, Andrew, to HIV and went through that journey with him for some years. 
but it was a really big thing in Melbourne and Andrew was involved in ACT UP. It was basically a worldwide movement of HIV positive people that were were doing a little bit more than just setting up health clinics and support services and stuff like that. They were actively out there and that's where the ACT, I think, ACT UP part came from. They demonstrated on the steps of Flinders Street Station and I helped out on many occasions. We painted banners and all sorts of things and I was really proud of what that community did, particularly when they ripped up the flower clock in the gardens. It was a huge outrage. They did all sorts of socially disruptive things, let's say that, and I'm really proud of what they did. There were mainly men involved, there were gay men involved, although I knew a couple of lesbians that were involved, but they actually did a lot of really good things and brought a lot of awareness to, particularly to World AIDS Day, I think, and they sold the ribbons and things like that for the World AIDS Day, but it had a huge, huge impact on the community and particularly for gay men. A lot of them disappeared into the woodwork a lot of the time, but there was a lot of support around the health clinics in St Kilda and stuff like that, but I really... I could do nothing but support them because it was just so incredibly unfair how they were targeted and they were physically beaten. And I know my my friend Andrew was beaten up several times and it, it was just, it was horrendous what they went through on a medical level, let alone on a social level. And he, because of his illness, had to end up moving back home with his parents and his parents lived in Brighton, unfortunately, so he was spat on. He overheard his next-door neighbours talking about filthy, disgusting gay men, HIV, spreading their germs, all sorts of horrible things like that he lived through and consequently I had to deal with at the time as well. And it was really sad. It was, you know, to see people die one after the other and then to eventually, to lose him, go to his funeral and his mother was still in denial of his HIV status. And I think on his death certificate it said something like a brain aneurysm or something or other, but it wasn't. It was, it was caused by his HIV status. So it was a very sad time all around. what's given me the confidence to be my authentic self that's pretty clearly a lot to do with age I think quite frankly and I think experience like I feel like I've seen everything not so well I certainly haven't seen anything because everything because I haven't traveled the world but I try to understand what's going on in the world and and I think it's really interesting that the LGBTQI community has the voice that it has now and has the representation that it has and to a certain degree the acceptance. I still don't think there's full acceptance there. I still think there's a kind of underlying current that's really not very pleasant at all, particularly with transphobia. But I still think there's a lot of assumptions made and I think that's the thing that gives me confidence as I grow older is that 
don't assume anything until you've spoken to that person and just give them a bit of leeway and just let them speak for themselves without shouting over the top of them or assuming that they're bad or otherwise because, yeah, I've seen a lot and I think that's the great thing about age is not so much wisdom, I'd hate to say wisdom in that regard, but I just think the more you see, the more you understand and the more you realise that you need to cut people a bit of slack, really cut them a bit of slack. This project was made possible with the financial assistance of Victoria's Pride Regional Activation Program and Midsummer Festival, and with the support of the Mount Alexander Shire Council, the Mount Alexander Shire LGBTIQA Plus Steering Group, and the Queer and Now Radio Program on Main FM 94.9. This podcast has been produced by the Queer and Now team, Shireen Clone and Amalie O'Hara at Main FM 94.9. Editing and original music by Amy Chapman. A big thank you to all participants for sharing their stories with such a wonderful generosity of spirit. If anything within this episode has been upsetting for you, please reach out and call the dedicated LGBTIQA plus helpline switchboard on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Kids Helpline 1800 55 1800.